So Kyle. Yeah, Tyler. Why do disruptive marketers love heading out to the ocean? Why do disruptive marketers love heading out to the ocean? I don't know. To make waves, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Making waves. I'd probably be drowning. I thought I'd make a splash with that joke as we Okay, yeah, episode. definitely. <laughs> Welcome to the Lionshare Podcast, for marketing leaders, by marketing leaders, brought to you by Fidelitas Development. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 17 of the Lionshare Marketing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tyler Sickmeyer, along with my good-looking co-host, Kyle. You can look, but you can't touch Weber. Kyle, great to have you back for another episode here. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Podcast. Yeah, it's good to be back. <laughs> is, that, is that a line you use on your dates? Is, hey, baby. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You could look, but you can't touch. Of course. But mostly related to the food I'm buying. So, That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hungry. I can't help it. All right. Yeah. Hey, everyone's got to eat. <laughs> so, Kyle, we've got a great interview queued up today. But before we get to it, tell us, what's in the news? News team, assemble! Okay, Tyler, today we have an article from Advertising Age called Check Your Inbox, Google Warns Publishers Serving Annoying Ads. So Google is planning to filter out what they call highly annoying, misleading, or harmful ads through their web browser Chrome starting early next year. Now, I use Chrome. I, you use Chrome too as well, I think. I do, and my computer memory hates me for it. Mine too, yeah. They've got to fix that. But anyway, publishers, beware. Google is part of the Coalition for Better Ads, and this filtering effort is really to raise the bar on publishers for them to further adhere to the Better Ads standard. So this last March, the Coalition asked 25,000 Americans and Europeans to rate 104 different ad experiences, and Tyler, you'll never guess what they found out. You're right, I won't guess. All right, well, let's get it. Tell me. <laughs> so what they found out was that consumers... Don't like pop-up ads. Can you believe it? Get out of town. Who would have ever thought? I don't know. But not they, only they do they... They conducted a study in 1997 because I believe the results have <laughs> been eerily similar back then. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right. But not only do they dislike pop-up ads, but they also aren't too keen on autoplay videos with sound, go figure, or too many ads at once and other unfriendly experiences. So... Yes. The article goes on to call out Betty Crocker of all websites. They call Naughty out Betty, Betty Crocker. I know. How, how do you hate on Betty Crocker? I don't know. They call out Betty Crocker stating that Google will be warning the brand and other brands using the same ad strategies on their website about what's to come in the future due to the annoying ad experience on certain publisher websites. So I had to find out for myself what was going on over there. So I went to BettyCrocker.com. Did you buy and some I, brownies? No, I didn't. I should have, but I didn't. I just hung on the site for about two seconds, and then I was served a pop-up ad for their newsletter recipe sign-up. And I also did not sign up for that. I probably should have, though. And we'll include that little screenshot in the notes uh, so you can see what Google is deeming as a violation. And it's honestly, the pop-up was pretty standard. It wasn't fancy, wasn't too big. And honestly, it's probably pretty effective when it comes to lead gen. But if you're really being honest with yourself and your experience on other brands' websites, you'll probably agree that pop-ups are pretty annoying. They can sideline your train of thought while you're in the middle of reading an article. 
And I don't know about you, Tyler, but for me, that train can fall right off the tracks, turning me pretty much into what you'd probably describe as the little engine that couldn't. Sorry, that's why I just tried to train you better when you start. Okay. Well, I'm trying. So, Tyler, I got to thinking about how we could illustrate just how annoying Google is saying pop-up ads are for consumers. So I came up with a little visual. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. I feel like this is story time with Kyle. Here we go. So what I want you to do, Tyler, is imagine that it's a normal Saturday morning for you. And you do what you do every Saturday morning, which is, of course, wearing nothing but a superhero cape in bright red superhero tights, holding a crossbow in one hand and a set of bagpipes in the other. And you're frolicking through a field of daisies with your wife whilst... Wait, you saw us? I did. I was there with a camera. You know, it's just good material, good content. And you're also saving puppies. I just want to stop right here. Saturday morning. Uh, Yeah, that's what I wanted to confirm. Can you confirm for our audience that this is pretty much a typical Saturday morning for you? Yes, absolutely. Unless it's hot yoga Saturday. Oh, yeah. That's an exception, of course. Of course. So as you're daintily skipping through the field with your wife, you realize that you need to stop and take a photo of yourself with a crown of daisies in your hair, obviously, because you need your Instagram followers to see just how in touch you are with nature, right? Of course. Absolutely. So as you're digging down into the dirt, meticulously selecting each flower to create the perfect crown of daisies to wear, you happen to kick up a little dust and it gets inside your nose. And then all of a sudden, you're about to sneeze. You can feel the tension building up inside your nostrils. My it's nose about, is tickling right now. Yeah, it is. I can feel it. It's sympathy, really. You can feel the tension building up inside your nostrils. It's about to be the biggest sneeze of your life. And just in the middle of your freaky looking pre-sneeze face, right as you're about to uncontrollably let the snot fly, your wife punches you square in the nose and you lose the sneeze. So Tyler, our audience is probably asking, what's the moral of this story related to ad experience for consumers? Well, I thought I would take the liberty to unofficially translate on behalf of Google to help them clarify what they're trying to say to publishers. And that would be adding pop-up ads to your website is the equivalent of going around to your visitors and ruining their sneezes. And nobody likes that. So here's the question. Sounds for divorce, really. Okay. Yeah, for sure. So here's my question. If publishers decide to comply with a better ad strategy, what do you think this means for marketers and brands, especially when a lot of their lead gen and sales come through pop-up ads on their website for newsletter signups? How are they going to adjust? Actually, Kyle, you know, I think it's pretty hard to ignore what is anything but a small sliver of the internet here. We're talking about 44% of internet users use Chrome as their primary browser. That's a good chunk of uh, That's huge. people. And as marketing leaders, we really can't ignore them. That means that we really have to pay attention to the rules that Google is setting. And it's frankly, best practices anyways. I mean, pop-ups, yeah, they can have a nice conversion rate if you run them right, but anymore, it's not worth running afoul of Google to do so. You're better off having static calls to action. And I think if you have a strong enough call to action or even leverage some clever GIFs or video on your site, you can get right around that and you'll see an even better conversion rate than you were with the pop-up in the first place. And you'll see your bounce rate drop because that's the other effect of the cause and effect of annoying pop-ups is your bounce rate goes up on your website. So I think as a nice little side benefit of complying with Google's stipulations is you're going to see your bounce rate drop. Absolutely. I can attest to that because I'll be in the middle of reading an article, let's say on my mobile phone, and then all of a sudden a pop-up will come up. And then sometimes 
the pop-up is so large that it goes outside of my mobile view and I can't even exit out. So I just back out of it and then I don't read the rest of the article. So yeah, I can attest to that. I do think that the bounce rates will go down as soon as brands start taking this off of their site. So, okay, I have some action steps, right? What if you want to see for yourself if the ad experience on your site violates the better ad standard or misleads your visitors, right? So Google has a tool for that. It's called the Ad Experience Report. And we'll go ahead and include that into the show notes, which will be lionssharepodcast.com slash 17. So now here's what you'll need to do to see if your website is violating the better ad standards. You will need to visit the link and we'll, like I said, provide that in the show notes. You'll also need to make sure that you're logged into whatever Gmail account you have set up for your webmaster tools or Google Analytics accounts. So whatever you set that up through, that's what you'll have to be logged into. And the reason why is because you're going to go to two different options. You're going to go to desktop or mobile or both. And then there'll be a drop down of all of your web properties within your account. You'll then select one of the properties to see if Google has already reviewed that website or not. So I tried this on one of my personal websites and it just said that the status was pending. So uh, they haven't gotten around to all of the websites out there. And was apparently, this kylesevenwear.com? Or yeah, kylesevenwear.com. Actually, I tried or, to check uh, Tyler's Tidy Whitey's too, but... That, that was pending as well. I, I, so. I changed the login info. Okay, that's that's <laughs> probably why. So yeah, so apparently Google hasn't gotten around to all the websites and they don't, I guess, necessarily consider mine as important as bettycrocker.com, which I'm a little disappointed in. But, you know, I'll deal with it. So uh, there are more tools, actually. When you go to this link, Google also gives you access to three other testing resources in the sidebar there of their ad experience report. The first one is the structured data testing tool. So you can use the structured data testing tool to check that Google can correctly parse your structured data markup and display it in search results. So that's the first one. The next one is a structured data markup helper. So this helps you with the first one. This is helpful if you're not sure how to start with adding structured data markup to your HTML. You can try this point and click tool that they provide and it should help you go through that and learn how to use it. And then the last one is actually for email. It's called the email markup tester. And you can validate the structured data contents of an HTML email using this email markup tester. So there you go. There are some resources you could check out. And you can see what Google thinks of the ad experience you are bestowing upon the interwebs. And like I said, we'll put all of that in the show notes. Good stuff, Kyle. And uh, maybe our listeners can learn from Betty Crocker and cook up their own online marketing success. <laughs> Let's hope they do. It's all about following the recipe. Okay, yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right, thanks, Kyle. Without further ado, let's get to our interview with Paul Daly. All right, and today on the Lion Share Marketing Podcast, we have Paul Daly, a Senior Manager of Commercial Marketing and E-Commerce and Global Marketing at Puma. Paul is the utter definition of a marketing leader, and we're very excited to have Paul on the show today. And so, Paul, tell us about your role at Puma. Great. My job title at Puma is Senior Manager of Global Brand and Commercial Marketing. And what that really means is the Puma Global Marketing Team divided into what we call commercial and consumer marketing. Consumer marketing is social media, sort of direct outreach to the customer, answering questions about, you know, would this color come in this size, and, and also dealing with a lot of our influencers on a direct basis. So 
Kylie Jenner is going to be tweeting about this new shoe six times on what day, what exactly will she be tweeting about, what shoe will be in the image that will sort of repurpose on Instagram for her. And the commercial marketing is, of course, sort of like making the products and all those stories more relevant to the consumer, right? So in the store and then in my side of the commercial marketing team online, digitally, how do we present Puma products and the stories around those products? in uh, the most effective way. How do we speak to what our customers are telling us they're interested in? Try to personalize and customize the stories as much as possible while also understanding that we have a long brand history and sort of the history of the brand is an important part of the Puma story. And we've been around since 1948. And so there are lots of things that we've done well before everyone else, including even the brother to Puma. If you don't know that story, we can quickly talk about it. But, you know, Puma and Adidas were two brothers in a small town in Germany that at some point in the 1940s didn't get along anymore and uh, split and created two different brands, which still exist right across the street from each other in this little town called Herzogronik, which is near Nuremberg in uh, Germany. And so, you know, long before Nike and Under Armour and pretty much everyone else, Puma and Adidas started the whole sportswear and uh, sports style and sneaker game. Puma was one of the first brands to release football boots, so soccer cleats. Yeah, so we've got a long history. So it's not just simply about selling a red shoe in a size nine. It's about sort of telling the story of Puma. And when I started, believe it or not, for such a big global brand, their e-commerce marketing, part of that was pretty early days. They've done a really good job of marketing in-store. And I think, you know, even in the United States, where Puma is uh, sort of a fourth or fifth player in the sports category, there were a ton of boom stores at, at some point in our path. And the way that that's gone has been more so to outlet. And so most of the sales of full price products in the United States happen on Puma.com. And that is trending that way in many parts of the world. There are parts of the world where credit cards in a digital space are still early days. And so in South America, for example, there are a ton of Puma stores and very little done on Puma.com. In fact, Puma.com in South America is just an informational website. So it talks about what our releases are, but it tells you where you can go buy them in store. And there are a couple of countries where we operate second-party sites. So sort of like Foot Locker, there's a company in Brazil called NetShoes that will sell with a Puma logo on their website, but it's really just their same website. But in many parts of the world, Europe, North America, Canada, and then lots of the emerging markets, so China, Japan, and India, the digital sales are really starting to ramp up. And so... My job is to take the creative direction of the campaign. We have Rihanna and she's designing a new collection. And how do we want to present those products in the digital space and have them stand out from the rest of the sort of noise in the space, but also taking into consideration the idea that, you know, in the digital realm, you don't have a salesperson to tell you, oh, that's what this is for. That's what that's for. That material is this. So you've got to be able to be respectful of the very short, attention span that a potential visitor has and get them to an elevated experience, something that looks really good, but also speaks to the positives of the product and why you should buy Puma instead of one of our competitors. That's awesome, Paul. And uh, so tell me, how do you make the most of your collaboration with a global celebrity brand like Rihanna? So it's more so part of what the consumer team does in the sense of the actual sort of contracts with the ambassadors and the way that we work in a on the ground way with our influencers. And so let me just draw that distinction. So we have ambassadors who are people like Rihanna, 
The Weeknd, Cara Delevingne, and those are people who are super well-known around the world for things other than just being social media influencers, right? So they're either actors, musicians, models, whoever, right? And then there's also a level of people that we work with called influencers, right? So someone who does open box videos for new football boots or someone who is a great graffiti artist who is always wearing the coolest clothes or someone who goes to, I don't know, the um, you know con festival and shows behind the scenes like what people are wearing um, and all the way down to sort of teenagers that take our products and wear them in interesting ways. You know, we released uh, a product last year called the Esquiva, which is sort of a boxing boot but it really is not meant to be used in boxing. So how would you style that? So us as the brand could say, oh, you should wear it with jeans and this sweatshirt and it would look kind of cool. But instead what we did is we seeded it out into the world with a bunch of 16 year olds and they said, oh, you should try to wear it this way. And what came back was a really more authentic campaign and our customers telling other customers how they could wear this product. And it's been a very successful way for us to market our products. We kind of start the fire and then we get out of the way and we watch it burn. And then it turns into, uh, you know, something that has proven to be uh, profitable and interesting for Puma. And it's a lot more authentic than us always telling people what they should do. Got it. That's awesome, Paul. And uh, tell me, uh, obviously, a global brand like Puma, you've got a lot of marketing assets, for lack of a better term, on your roster, both influencers and endorsers. How do you go about deciding who you're going to feature where and in what format? So in the case of some of the more famous people we work with and so that's you know both ambassadors and then sort of players teams like arsenal bvb italy we have different contracts that are sort of related to different parts of their business offering so for example you know a soccer player uh, in some senses might only want to be known on the pitch right he might not want to be captured in campaigns that are showing the other side of puma sort of the regular gray sweatshirt and suede and what you might wear on the weekends there's other people that we're, we have full sort of contracts with where they will do whatever we'd like them to. And so we would put together a proposal, a brief about how we would like to use them in three times next season. And uh, that's run by their team. And we decide what's the best way to take advantage of that. There's other people who specifically contract with Puma for a certain type of thing. So, for example, Cara Delevingne is a good example, right? So she's a, not only a model, but also an activist. So one of the things that she said was, you can put me in this campaign and I'll sell those shoes, but you also have to allow me to go to Africa and photograph me on the ground with some of the charities that I work with. You've got to show me as a humanitarian too and not just a person wearing Puma shoes. And so we have you know, built campaigns around the idea that they're full-bodied individuals that are not just the person you see on screen or that you see you know, in a music video or whatever. And that sort of full humanity of the ambassadors that we work with. Yeah, that's so prime. It really is about the relationship. And I'd imagine that you get far more out of your ambassadors for taking that approach than say a strictly transactional approach where it's like, okay, I get my three tweets, I get an Instagram post, here are the hashtags you use and go from there. Yeah. And one of the things I'm learning as I get into, you know, further and further in my marketing career is that no matter what you might understand as a person with X amount of experience in a room with another group of professionals, the on-the-ground influences that make something successful are often well beyond the grasp of the people that are in any particular room. And so the idea that you watch Mad Men and Don Draper and four of the guys drink a martini and sit there and decide what the next big ad campaign for Coca-Cola is, is kind of an outdated paradigm. I think that 
putting products out into the world and letting the people that are actually buying and using them tell you how they use them. As I described a little bit earlier, we've seen really uh, interesting takes on ways to use our products. And some of the collaborations that we have come up with have come about that way. When someone has tweeted to us, hey, check out this. This is the way I wore this shoe. And we have come back and said, okay, this person has a million followers on Twitter and they're doing really cool stuff with our products for free. Why don't we design a shoe with them? So there's been some really interesting things that have come from unexpected places. Uh, we have a, a sort of division or a, a subset of category on Puma called Select. And so what those are is going out and finding influential, interesting people, often young people, but in different countries around the world that are designers or artists or singers or rappers and getting their take on Puma products. And it's very much like a, an incubator for the future inline styles, right? So we, we've got a, a design group in New York City called A-Lights and they've had a small store that was just for the sneakerheads and very, very small runs. And so at the beginning, we developed some shoes. We developed an A-Life suede and a couple of track jackets and a few other t-shirts and things. And we did maybe a thousand of each and they sold out in one week. And so we realized wow. that the collaboration could go forward from there, right? That, that they have a bigger following, but also we realized that if we can get them to help us design the next colorway for the inline suede, that they can then sell in their store for 80 bucks instead of 150 bucks, that we found a new audience where we've got to be able to not only take these collaborators and turn them into long-term Puma customers, right? That's one of the challenges we have with someone like Rihanna is that her fans love her and they love whoever she endorses often for only as long as she endorses them, right? So how do we convert a Rihanna customer into a Puma customer? And how do we get them to come back and buy the next gray sweatshirt that doesn't have the Fenty logo on it? That's a bit of a challenge. That's where this ambassador sort of direction needs a little tweaking. And I think that we've found it with certain collaborations and others we haven't. We've seen some people that when their contract up, their customers go with them wherever they go next. And so that's sort of the long-term challenge with this ambassador strategy is, is it a viable way to build recurring long-term life value customers. And we haven't really got to the point that we can say yes or no on that yet. Got it. And you're exactly right, Paul. You talked about the perception of the Mad Men era being outdated. We don't sit around drinking martinis anymore. It's whiskey now. Definitely uh, <laughs> definitely changed with the times. But no, you bring up a great point. And I think it takes a team effort to get there. So tell us, uh, Paul, how did you go about building your team at Puma? So we started off in a, in a position where when I came to Puma, our team was basically just project managers, right? So we would just keep the trains running on time and make sure that the deliverable dates were as close to on time as possible. I mean, this is another challenge with a global brand and working with ambassadors all over the world is, you know, you've got a shoe that drops on September 1st and you get a famous ambassador in the shoot. And then they're not available for the month of August. So no one's approving the creative. And the challenges of delivering things on time and making sure there's a coordinated drop date across the world is a lot more challenging than it sounds. So that we were doing an okay job of that. But in terms of advocating for our customers, in sort of terms of saying, okay, so this is what you thought it would look like on a billboard in Tokyo. But how is that going to actually translate to a person in San Diego who's on Puma.com trying to figure out what his next shoe is? And one step even before that, you know, how are we going to drive people to these pages? I mean, Puma.com, like any website, only exists for as much as the customers find it. And we have really 
done a better job lately, but we're still a ways away from doing the true sort of digital marketing and SEO, SEM, sort of PTC that we need to drive the level of customers that will sustain the digital business. And I think that that's where the ambassador angle has helped us. But so we started off with this idea that we would just deliver creative on time. And then I took that team and built it to a place where we are briefing six months before a drop what we actually need. Okay, so this is what type of photography our customers are telling us they uh, resonate with, right? Even though it's Sergio Aguero from Man City and it's Italy and you know BVB and Dortmund, but people in the U.S. just want a cool-looking football boot. They don't necessarily know who those guys are. So we spend a lot of money to have them as assets, so we want them on the page, but we don't always lead with them in the U.S., where we might sure. lead with Michael Bradley, for example, right? So yep. I think that there's nuance through different parts of the world. There are certain types of models that are less popular or let people resonate less with in Asia than they do in South America, right? So we've got to think about that. Like, how are we shooting these things to be universally well-received? And how are we taking a look at what the customers actually tell us? I think we very often sort of said, I think this is what the customer would like. And, or if I was buying this shoe, I would say this and that. And I think, you know, that's kind of, again, another outdated paradigm that we can use real-time analytics and user data to understand what customers are telling us. We don't have to guess anymore what people may or may not like. We can just use the data that we have in front of us to tell us. They're telling us they don't like that one as much as that one. Why don't we show more of this B ad and constantly doing A-B testing? Again, not fully there with the brand, but it's something that we're headed in the right direction. Those type of understanding of who our customer is, we're still at a very elementary level compared to the size of the brand. I mean, there are people... I've worked at companies that were $20 million companies that did a much better job of understanding who their customers are than the $4 billion company that Puma is. But we're headed in the right direction. And I think that we are finally starting to understand that any decision about digital marketing that's done without a layer of data behind it is a missed opportunity. Oh, agree wholeheartedly. You know, that's a great point. And again, it seems like any more everyone's, especially just in light of even the recent events here in the US, but everyone is rightfully so overly sensitive to perceptions and how brands respond to different situations, whether or not they even should be responding. And so how do you, when you talk about making creative for a global brand and for a brand that touches so many different cultures, how do you go about vetting your own creative to make sure that you stay on the right side of everything and uh, don't offend one of your core customer groups? Ultimately, we have to understand that you can't be everything to everyone. And I think that we as a brand have a point of view. We have a story and there's a lot of the discourse that happens in the sneaker world that was actually started by Puma. We had this very interesting and it was kind of an only an internal campaign tagline, but it was something that really resonated with me and helped me in my focus in the last like 12 months was no football without Puma, right? This is from our team sport. So this is the team that handles soccer they also, lots of other sports in Europe, like cricket, handball, and there are lots of sports that are not popular in the U.S. that, that Puma's well you know, entrenched in, but soccer being the biggest one. So no football without Puma. And basically what that meant was Pele wore Puma, Maradona wore Puma, the first Brazilian World Cup team wore Puma. There would be no football without Puma. So this idea that, you know, we have a long-standing story to tell, and that story predates Nike by 35 years. So... Now, whether Nike is the most popular brand in the world, that's a fact, and there's nothing you can do about that. But we don't necessarily have to always approach it as, okay, what are 14-year-olds in Japan wearing, and what are 14-year-olds in Germany wearing, and what are 14-year-olds in 
California wearing. Like we can drive the conversation as well. And so I think in understanding what our customers want and don't want, those are small nuances. Those are where we might have seven colorways and we say to the region, tell us what your major buy is, right? So Japan bought the orange boot and Germany bought the you know black boot and the US bought the red boot. So we will feature products, make sure there are enough variation or product shots that each region gets their key colorway, so to speak. But it, you know, in general, the story that comes from the brand needs to represent what the brand is trying to tell. And I think there's so small nuances. So to your question, I guess, you know, we don't deliver 12 different versions of every campaign because region A wants X and region Y wants B. I mean, I think that's not the way we look at it. You know, we, we really understand what's being bought into. I mean, Puma is still also very much driven by trade and wholesale, right? So 70% of our revenue comes from third-party footlocker, sure. soccer.com, or soccer shop. So if footlocker says, we want the red boot, guess what? The red boot is prominently featured in all the creative in Europe and the U.S., and that's just a matter of commerce. So we're not making customized boots for every country and every person that buys from Puma. But we do understand that there are parts of the story that we as a brand can't control and don't want to control. We want to understand what our customers want. So it really is a give and take, but not quite as challenging as delivering 25 different pieces of creative because that's what the 25 regions have asked for. Sure, sure. Totally get it. And so in regards to that, you know, obviously you've had your hand in a lot of marketing campaigns in a lot of different regions. Tell our listeners about some of your uh, more successful marketing campaigns. So I guess, you know, over the last couple of years, I'd say the most successful things that I've been involved with, I mean, Rihanna and who, who signed with Puma as a, sort of endorser. So someone who would wear Puma clothing and would be photographed, say on the weekends, she would wear it to the gym and, and she'd be going to some award show and before she got in her gown, she would have Puma stuff on and, and that would end up on Instagram or whatever. That relationship progressed into a creative director role. And as her interest has grown into the fashion world and she's wanted to become a creative designer and a director herself, then we decided that that made sense for us too. And we changed and transitions more towards her as a designer of her own collection. So the Fenty collection, which is, you know, all that's her, her last name and that's her design. And she literally does personally a lot of design work on a lot of the products in the Fenty collection. And so we're now into the third season that's launching next month. And that was by far the most successful in terms of generating a buzz, bringing Puma back to a point where we're on sneaker freaker and we're on all the industry magazines and people are talking about the buzz that's created uh, by Puma. We um, recently sort of flip-flopped in the worldwide rankings with Under Armour. So we're third again. And I think that a lot of that has to do with, with Rihanna. And so the success of that campaign is really, again, kind of like being authentic and not telling her that we want you to do this, this, and this sort of giving her creative license to do what he thought was interesting. And I'm sure there are times when we've had to reel the team in a little bit. But generally speaking, if you look at some of her collection, there are things that are really off left field from what Puma would normally release, but they've been successful. And in the places that they, that they haven't necessarily sold a lot, they have pushed the boundaries of what a brand like Puma could present to the world. And I think that's been, that's been good too. That's been good for us because then... We've been able to find other collaborators a few steps closer to the core releases, people like Big Sean and The Weeknd, whose collections are, let's say, what we sell on an everyday basis plus one or two. 
as opposed to Rihanna might be like nine or 10. So very far away from where we start with an average sure. sort of running or, yeah. And so, but other, I mean, other collaborations that have been successful, I mean, uh, uh, we've got a very successful uh, relationship with Arsenal. So Arsenal is possibly, you know, third or fourth most popular football team in the world. And they're been, crushing they, Yeah. And they've been, uh, <laughs> you're talking to a hot sport fan. Well, yeah, you could, you could walk across the street and go look at some trophies that you guys don't have. Possessed on side. Um, I can only say this because I've got two weeks left at Puma, but I'm actually a Chelsea fan and I've been a Chelsea fan for 25 years. So uh, I'm not a big fan of either team on the pitch, but off the pitch and in, in terms of sales and sort of worldwide recognition, Arsenal's been huge for us. And we've done uh, a couple of really successful um, shirt launches. Uh, we, we launched uh, two years ago on an Asian tour and we had a simultaneous launch around the world. So it launched at exactly the same time across the world. This year we did something called step out, which is all of the Puma soccer teams from uh, Arsenal to Italy, to BVB, to Chevis in, in Mexico and a bunch of other teams at a more local level, all basically wore a blacked out version of their shirt. So the third kit for all those teams is a blacked out version of the shirt. Now look, they look very similar. I mean, of course you can tell the logo, and the key sort of striping and piping on the sides and the Puma cat and all that are, are standout colors that represent the club, but all of them are generally black. And it, it was a really interesting way to do it. It's kind of cool. And we launched it so that uh, at, as each time zone across the world changed to midnight, a new shirt launched. And so, yeah, that's been successful, not only from a sales standpoint, but just from a perception standpoint to show that, you know, there are competitors that have more teams on their roster but Puma has a very well-represented roster of successful teams. And sort of in any league around the world, there are a good number of Puma teams. Again, not always the highest grossing team, but we were well-represented in all the major soccer leagues around the world. And from a, just a sort of in-line, I guess, like what Puma's bread and butter is, I mean, Puma Suede and Puma Clyde, were sort of variations of each other, have been the core products and sort of the most successful things that Puma have sold over the last 40 years. And so we have continuously sort of revamped those, added new collaborations. We're working with Big Sean right now, who's designing a really cool collection, which is a lot closer to inline. And then coming up for 2018, we've got some, the 50th anniversary of Swede. So we've got some really interesting stuff coming up. So yeah, it's been exciting. You know, I mean, most of what we sell, as in any business, it's kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts, the day-to-day stuff, a pair of white socks and, uh, you know, a, a shirt you can wear when you work out. So, I mean, it's not always the $250 collaboration with Rihanna or some colorway that's only available, you know, 50 quantity at the exclusive boutique in New York City. Those are the exciting stories. But from a marketing standpoint, we've also got to balance that with selling products and keeping the, the bottom line, uh, you know, in mind. Yeah. Great point. And, uh, and one good takeaway there for our marketing leaders that Paul kind of alluded to, but didn't come right out and say is even though, you know, Paul is an avid Chelsea fan, he's still taking full advantage of that partnership with Arsenal. And I think too often marketing leaders can fall into the trap that we advise against so often, which is to forget that we are not our own demographic that we are marketing to. And sometimes it's easy to fall into, well, I like this or I don't like that when in reality, it's not about what we like or don't like. It's about what our customers will respond to. So, Paul, uh, great job pointing that out. Yeah, the other thing sort of to tie into that is this idea that, you know, as we alluded to earlier with the 
a previous way of approaching marketing sort of from top down. So the storytelling aspect of marketing. Puma has coined uh, this term called story doing. So meaning that it's less about what we tell you and more about what you do with it. And I think that, you know, not to veer off too far, but it could be a really good description in the way that we could we could deal with our even political discourse, which is just like, let we listen a little more, talk a little less. And I think that we would find the answers that we thought we had well-defined in our mind and we knew what we should do here and here often aren't the right path forward. Yeah, we definitely have learned that. We can't, we don't have all the answers and, uh, and I think it would be better if we approach it that way as a learning experience, sort of no need to try to understand your customers and then put a mark in the ground and then act on that. It should be a continuous experience. It should be that we know what you did last month. So this month we're going to re- respond to that. But meanwhile, we're still studying you this month. So next month we can do the same. I think that is a, a learning that comes in other parts of our life, but not necessarily in the business world and in marketing in general. I think people kind of want to say, well, I know my customer. I know what my conversion rate is. I know what this or that is. And I think that that is, it's good to know those numbers, but that's not a fixed data point. It's a constantly ever evolving way to look at your business. And if you're not developing campaigns that are being tested in real time and understanding how to modify those campaigns next month and the following month based on the new data you have, then you're really missing the opportunity. Your customers are changing every day, every hour. If you're not tracking that and responding to that, then you're stuck in the path where you even launch your campaign. So true. So true. And so, Paul, taking a step back to the bigger picture for a minute, how do you go about integrating retail with e-commerce? Obviously, uh, two very different formats, uh, different strategies required, but they also go hand in hand. So how have you gone about merging the two strategically? So the creative direction for the campaign starts off at a global level with our global marketing team and uh, our overall brand creative director. And so the person who signs off on the way we're going to shoot Usain Bolt or Arsenal or whoever we're talking about from an asset standpoint is considering retail and e-commerce at the same time. I think that you know Puma has very much been a brick and mortar focused business for a long time. And I think that's true of a lot of businesses. And I think the way that you get to a digital first sort of understanding as a company, is not a straight line. And I think that there are many companies that have been founded in the last 10 years that are sort of digital first. And I think if you go to any number of trade shows like Shop Talk that we met at, you'll find digital first companies, companies that have a, a very short runway so far, and they have a better understanding of how to incorporate digital and what that means to their retail and brick and mortar and trade and whatever. But when you have a company with, you know, 50 or 60 years of history, most of it in the physical world, then it's harder to turn that ship, right? It's a slower evolving process for getting to the point that digital becomes considered an important part of the business. So Puma Ecom is still a very small part of the overall revenue for the brand. And so, and I think that's true for a lot of companies that have legacy brands that have been around. I think that you understand what it is that is your bread and butter. And so as the digital person at a company like Puma, you have to take small steps. You know, I come from places that were only online and Puma in some senses was a step back in terms of what we were doing at those smaller companies and how they looked at everything being measurable and everything has a, a data point and there's analytics behind everything. And Puma doesn't look at things that way yet. They're getting there, but it's still an evolving process. And so retail generally takes the lead in terms of creative. And so this has been part of my challenge over the last three years has been 
getting our creative team to say, okay, so 60% of the brief is the same, but that last 30, 40% needs to be focused on whatever the channel you're talking about. And so if you're doing a two day shoot, second half of that day needs to be focused on e-com. It needs to be focused on digital. And what are the assets that we need to sell online that are different than retail? So we have a built-in sort of inherent amount of uh, you know creative that speaks to each other, right? So when you walk into a store, you're going to see creative that's very similar to what you see online. But it's around the edges and the nuances of what makes a digital experience different than a physical experience that you know is a challenge for my... So I think you know the commercial marketing team comprise two halves and one's retail as I spoke about earlier and one's e-com. So from the beginning, we're starting off with the same brief, a high percentage aspects of the same. And then it's in the margin, so to speak, the edges of what makes a digital campaign specific for the dot-com space where we diverge. So how we go about keeping them close is, is sort of part of what's already built into the process. So, so I would turn that question around and say, we probably are too close to retail right now. We need to continue to push out into the edges of what makes digital special. Mm, good insights. Good insights. And so, Paul, how do you go about building relationships with your agency partners? Obviously, you've got multiple uh, agencies on your roster there. How do you go about building strong collaborative relationships? So we've got a couple of agencies of record, and they are focused on things that we sort of feel they're strongest with. We have a you know design agency, so people that design the actual pieces that make the demand where a website work, uh, Salesforce, Commerce Cloud now. And then we have creative agencies that can take an idea sort of conceptually and come up with, okay, here's where your holiday campaign should be, or here's what we would like the Arsenal to look like when they launch a new shirt next summer. And so the way I approach those two different relationships is differently. I mean, obviously there are constraints within the framework of the way that your website is built. And there are, you know, for better or worse, uh, demand where it is, I wouldn't say it's limiting. That's, that's not a fair way to say it, but there definitely are guardrails up that prevent you from uh, doing certain things. And in many cases, as I've learned more about it, that's a good thing. That means you don't break the website every time you launch a new campaign. When you're designing for a certain web platform, the reasons that there are, like I said, guardrails in place, it's so that you don't go so far off the deep end that you are not able to complete a transaction or connect to your payment methods. And, and obviously, that's the most important thing you're doing. It's not how it looks. If you, people can't buy it, then that's a problem. But the agencies that we allow to say, here's a very early sketch. Here's a couple of the selects from the very beginning of the shoot that haven't even been retouched. Now go figure out how you would produce this in a digital realm. We give them a lot of a lot of autonomy. We give them the ability to come back with three or four ideas that are often like way, way off the rails. And through a couple of rounds of iterations, we get back to a place where we're more comfortable. That works nice. with, to your point earlier, retail and sort of find a, a happy medium. But I think, again, to my earlier point, the idea that Puma doesn't yet sort of fully embrace the digital first paradigm makes that a little bit more challenging. And I think that there are brighter days ahead for the Puma digital team in terms of really expanding and sort of getting the agency enough rope to go out and do some really, really amazing things. So I don't think that we have done our best work yet, but I think it's an ever evolving sort of relationship in the way that we work with agencies and whether it's the agencies we currently work with or new agencies, I think each time we design a campaign, we have a post-mortem and we learn from our mistakes and try to try to improve going forward. So I trust my agency partners a lot. But I also know that there are, you know, 20 other cooks in the kitchen at a brand our size 
that all want to have their say. And so many times what you end up in the final on the page result is not exactly where you started. And that's okay. That's okay. But I do think that you know, as you prove out the successes and you can put numbers behind it, we've been able to slowly chip away at winning more and more of those creative battles. I think uh, commercial marketing, when I started, was very much a transactional part of the business. And what would you guys know about what, what the page would look like? Just go sell products. And so the more we understand our customers and say, okay, well, we've done A and B and B far outperformed A. So next time you do a shoot, you should shoot more like B. And here's the numbers. The creative team has been very responsive to that. I think that they're finally saying, okay, you know what? It's not just your opinion now. There's actual numbers. Our customers agree with you. And this is why we would like to go in that direction. So we're starting to finally be able to get creative that's more interesting, but also resonates with our customers better. And I think that's a, nice. it's a, it's a long process, a long process. No doubt. And to kind of flip the question around a little bit, when it comes to agency partnerships, Paul, how can shops like Fidelitas do better? So one thing I see as a sort of hole in the space is this idea that my relationship with my agency, my relationship with you, Tyler, or anyone else in the business, personally, aside from my relationship with my senior group, right? And so when I have an agency, I feel very often that creative agencies have super bright people that dive into the brief, they study Arsenal, they understand the team a little bit. One of our agencies has a designer who loves Arsenal and has been a fan for 20 years. And so his understanding of what the Gunners means to Gunners and Gunners fans in London, and that's a really interesting perspective to bring as a creative agency. But, but when you bring the pitch to us, you have to understand that I then have to take this super in-depth two-day session at my agency's office. And I have to sell it in three bullets to a senior team. And so one of the things I would love to see and something that I might possibly explore in my future career is being able to build an idea that this is what we would hope it to be, but here's why it makes sense. And build that for the client. I think that could make you super valuable to your customers. I mean, the person that's in charge of creative that works with your agency if you gave them a one-sheeter that they could send an hour later to their senior team, think about how much quicker you could get things done. Think about how much you know, uh, more expedited you get a sign-off and get on to actually doing fun stuff. I think that that's part of the problem is I've got this you know, 25-page presentation that then has to be boiled down into, okay, is it going to make us money? Is it going to cost too much to produce? Okay, so what can you tell me about your experience in terms of production costs, in terms of, okay, I can get models for X. I can produce it in San Diego for Y, which is cheaper than doing it in Paris. Like There are things that could make my life easier. And any agency that makes my life easier is someone I'm going to work with more often. Great point. And that's something we, we, we always try to do. And sometimes we're better at it than others, admittedly. And I think all marketing leaders should look for this from their agency is just that, that pursuit of simplification when it comes to the, the relationship and what can we do again it's like the old customer service thing, right? It's like, you know, carrying, you know, going back to our childhood, you know, you work in a grocery store, you carried out the elderly woman's bags to her car for, you know, it's that same principle of white glove customer service and what can we do to better serve our clients. And I definitely see a lot of opportunity there and I won't go too much into detail on what we're working on behind the scenes at Fidelitas, but that's certainly a big priority for us internally as well. And I think the idea that you um, simplify the way you explain things as much as possible. And this is something I trouble with. I've been a writer for a long time. And so 
I kind of tend to be long-winded. And I read some articles about some of the smartest people in the world, people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett will often write back one sentence or even two words. And it's like, I think that that, you know, helps a lot. Like if you can concisely explain to me why this makes sense and literally do it in two bullets in an executive summary, that can help me sell it. And that I think is part of the, the challenge I see from a creative standpoint is that, you know, you need to date to explain why this works. It's just going to be hard for me to sell it forward. And so that's going to further complicate the relationship and make it harder for me to get you to do more than the very basics. Cause my boss and his boss are going to say, just do what you did last time. That was successful. But if you can say, we're going to take 10% of our customers, we're going to spin them off and show them a different version of this creative. It's only going to cost us an extra $2,000. And as soon as we see what the, you know, ROI is on this, we'll report back to you. And that will help us decide maybe next time we do 25% of the customers, we show them this. And mm. so I just think this idea that, you know, you, you make it as simple and palatable for the people above you to understand. Because, you know, you and I would say as an agency and client would talk almost every day or at least multiple times a week. My boss is going to is hearing from your agency once every couple of months. So what can we do to optimize that conversation and get him to feel that in the background, all these things are already being taken care of because we're considering what it is that makes this successful and not. And we're allowing him to then take it to his boss and say, hey, I got two new market initiatives. I can tell you them in one minute and they're both going to be successful because as soon as they're not, we're pulling the plug. And if they are, we're doubling down on it. That kind of thing is something I don't see enough from agencies and it could really be helpful. Great stuff, Paul. And so tell us from an e-commerce standpoint, what's keeping you up at night? I guess the idea that digital first, sort of mobile first and digital first is still an afterthought in much of the industry. And so me thinking about potentially going agency side in my next role, that's difficult. I'm sure you feel the same is that in that, you know, you can come up with the greatest ideas, but if you can't sell them through and you can't get someone to buy off on it, then what have you accomplished? And so I think that as a sort of industry that digital marketing needs to make better cases for themselves. I think that we often go to conferences and we sit in a room with a bunch of other digital marketing people and there's a couple guys on stage who call themselves thought leaders, but really they're just bouncing ideas off the wall too. And so all of us leave there feeling that we have the answer. We have all the answers. And then we get back and someone who's involved in very deep financial conversations or who just got you know beat up in the press or there's a bad customer service experience or this website crashes, he's going to say, I don't really care about what color the background is on this creative. I really just want to know, are we going to sell more shoes? And so how can we sort of boil the whole thing down? I guess the overarching part of this entire conversation is being concise and being to the point and this executive summary idea of just saying, okay, here's what's important. Here's why it's important. And here's what you're going to gain by doing A. And here's what you're going to miss by not doing A. Lots of big brands don't understand what they don't know and they have a model. And if they're doing well, then they don't see uh, a need to sort of look down the road. And uh, digital marketing really needs a, a forward-thinking approach. I think you need to think about where it's going to be in two years or five years. And part of that is, I don't know where it's going to be in five years, but I know that me sitting in a room with three other people in their 30s and 40s and 50s is not going to come up with the answer. I think the answer is out there in the influencer sphere and the, what are young people doing? How are they using it? How are they using these things? How are they taking something like Snapchat 
would start off kind of like a, just sending jokes and maybe, you know, dating and maybe even dirty pictures to people who turned into this like viable way to make money. I don't, I don't know that anyone knew what could happen there. And it only comes from putting it in the hands of the actual users and stop sort of talking down from the top to your customers and instead engage in a conversation with them. Great insight. And so where do you think e-commerce is going to be in two years? I mean, I don't see malls lasting too much longer in the U.S. Yeah. I think that the, the sort of going back to the Main Street model, and that could even be malls. I and mean, we were seeing more and more sort of open-air malls here in the, in the Boston area, which is interesting based on our climate. I, mean, they're, I know they're really popular in California and Texas and many places where the weather's nice. So that's kind of a new experience for us here on the East Coast. But I think the idea that you drive to a mall and you park an eighth of a mile from the door and you spend five hours there shopping, I think consumers understand what it is they want and they're not finding it in the mall. And there's no need to be limited by the inventory that's in a specific store. So I think that the future of e-commerce is really just, you know, becoming more responsive to customers. I think that the the whole personalization from a company like Amazon is still a little bit unfulfilled. I think that when I emails and says, hey, you're probably getting low on dog food and we could probably send you some paper towels. Like, that's cool. And oftentimes the predictions are pretty good. But I still don't see it as responsive as it could be. And I think that as we learn more and more about customers, I think that the online experience will become more and more personalized in the sense that it, it saves you time. I think that if you feel that there's too much data about you in the world and it's kind of obtrusive, and I think that could be true. But I think if that data resulted in you being able to do things more quickly and efficiently and you're able to buy the three things you need and get back the time that you were spending with your kids, as we talked about earlier, before the recording started, I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things I got from Shop Talk in one of the talks was with someone from Amazon and they were talking about, but do people really need something in two hours? That, you know, Amazon sort of set the paradigm for two-day delivery. And now they're doing, you know, can I get it to you in an hour? Can I get it to you in two hours? And uh, the question from the moderator was, do people really need a roll of toilet paper in two hours? And the answer from Amazon was, it just, it's not about two hours. It's about the time you gain back in your life, right? It's the idea that if, if digital commerce can make your life easier, then I think people will use it more and more. If it becomes an impediment and it's like you're constantly spending your day trying to remember a hundred passwords and uh, worrying if your credit card has been stolen for the umpteenth time that week. Sure. Um, yeah. Then I think, then I think it takes a step back. So I think we continue to push it forward as a means to save time, right? To get the things done that you want to get done more quickly. So you can get back to the real important things in your life. And I think that's, that's, I'm not sure we're there yet, but I think we're, we're heading in the right direction. I think you're spot on, Paul. Uh, heck, after this uh, interview, I'm getting ready to head to a lunch meeting at an open air mall. It's even then, it's not like I'm going to go around shopping afterwards. You know, I'm going to go there for what I'm set for, which is a quick lunch and then get the heck out. Mainly because, like you said, from a time perspective, it's just so much easier to get everything taken care of online. It's just a simpler way of doing things. So, yeah, definitely see a lot of opportunity there for e commerce brands that figure out ways to simplify the process for their customers. And so, Paul, I want to be as respectful of your time as possible. Really appreciate you taking time to hang out with us here and dropping so many great insights in regards to advertising and global marketing and e-commerce. And to kind of put a bow on it, Paul, if you had to give one key takeaway for our listeners, what would be the one thing you want them to come away with from this interview? Yeah, I think the most important thing for me, and it's, a, as I've said a number of times, it's a sort of ever-evolving process of learning for me as well, is just admitting that you as a marketer don't have 
all the answers and don't need all the answers. I think that you should learn to understand what data means to your business, learn how to study what your customers are telling you, both with their actions and their inactions, and be able to then act upon those things. I think the days of trying to predict what is going to sell in winter 2018 are kind of outdated. I think that fast fashion and being able to quickly turn as trends change is really the future of commerce in general, but in e-commerce and from a marketing standpoint, I think we need to study data and trends and understand our customers are telling us what they want. It's a matter of, are we listening to them or not? And so that's been the biggest takeaway for me is I used to think of marketing as a bunch of so-called smart people sitting in a room coming up with ideas. And now I realize that it has progressed to the point that you don't have to guess anymore, right? 50% of our marketing is unsuccessful. We just don't know which 50% it is. And that's kind of a, that, that, that was an old paradigm from John Wanamaker from the 1920s. And if you are still feeling that way about your marketing, then you're willful in that disregard for what's available in terms of customer data. I mean, you don't need to be in the dark anymore. You can choose to be, and many brands still do, and they're still successful. But I'm not sure in the long run that's going to fly. I think customers are going to expect that you know they already bought that red Bucks hat or that blue Padres jersey. They don't want to see that jersey again, right? There's going to get a point where they're expecting you to provide them with the same kind of top quality service you would get in a great physical store online. And I think when you get to that point where I remember who you are, I know what size you are, I remember that this jacket didn't fit you last time, but that suit fit you really well. And I can get you on your day. And by the way, the shirt and tie combo matches. And I'll send it to your house. And if you don't like it, you can send it back for free. I think we can start to get to a point where we are delivering something that is better than they can get elsewhere. Then I think digital commerce just bought. And from a marketing standpoint, I think that's all about understanding the information that your customers are telling you already. You're just either listening or you're not. Mm. Yeah, a lot of great insight there. A lot of great insight there. And again, the key, uh, uh, again, for our marketing listeners, it's better to be responsive than to consider yourself a great guesser. So, Paula, thank you again so much for joining us on the Lionshare Marketing Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Uh, really appreciate your insights and looking forward to seeing where life takes you next. And in the meantime, if our listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to keep in touch with you? Yeah, so you can reach me at pauldaily09 at gmail.com. That's Paul Daly, D-A-I-L-E-Y, 09 at gmail.com. And if you're looking for a DJ for your nightclub event, I've been a DJ for 30 years too, so that's a side thing. So pauldaily.com, same spelling as my DJ website. And something I do on the side, I don't do it as much as I used to, but it's something I've been doing for a really long time. So you can get in touch with me that way as well. All right, hold up. What's your DJ name? No, I don't have a DJ name. From the days when the DJ used to be in a little dark booth in the back of the club and your job was to make people have good music, have fun and unwind and, and get over a tough week. You weren't on stage with spotlights on you. And so, yeah, I, I don't have, my DJ name is Paul Daly. It's not anything special, but you know, I DJed uh, all over the United States and Europe kind of in the days when touring DJs were early days. And uh, my bank account kind of tested that. <laughs> Calvin, Calvin Harris makes $400,000 a night. I probably made $400,000 in the last 30 years. <laughs> they were on quite different planets, but yeah, in terms of having like a real true passion, it's definitely been music my whole life. So understanding what the customers want from the D-Day booth is very similar to marketing. It's like, you know, you come in with an idea, but then you have to be able for that idea to be molded and the idea has to be malleable and understand that what you wanted the night to be might not always be how it turns out, but if you can make the right adjustments, 
then at the end of the night, you were successful. And it's the same with a marketing campaign. You really need to understand that trying to get your story out is less important than getting a successful story out. And I think that's a blow to the ego of some marketing geniuses who feel that they always have the right answer. I would rather show up with a bag full of records or a campaign idea that our customers shoot down, but then say, hey, but I'd rather do this. And guess what? At the end of the night, everyone in the club had a good time or our shoe was successful. And that's more important than trying to be very stringent on. I wanted it to be red and I stuck with red and no one bought it, but that's because they have bad taste. That's not the right attitude from my standpoint. Unless they request call me, maybe. Let's yeah, there's a point where a very heavy bribe has to come in or it's not going to happen. True. Same thing with Freebird, right? Yeah, <laughs> I have admit that I had to play Paradise by Dashboard Light this summer, so sorry to say that. <laughs> oh, good. I smell a follow-up episode in the future when we go into your uh, DJing uh, euphemisms in regards to marketing. So, Paul, thanks again for joining the Lion Share Marketing Podcast. Thanks, Tyler. Have a nice day, man. You too. All right, and thanks to Paul Daly for another great interview here on the Lion Share Marketing Podcast. Uh, it's been fun here watching the show progress, and we keep getting better and better guests as we go along, better and better content. Try to keep improving this for our listening audience. Thank you to all of you listening along. And before we sign off today, we have a little bit of uh, bittersweet news to share. Our co-host and longtime friend of mine, Kyle, is going to be departing the Lion Share Marketing Podcast as he is venturing out on his own entrepreneurial endeavor in St. Louis, where he is now the proud owner of an organic pizza joint. I'm going to let Kyle give a plug. We'll only bill him half the normal CPM rate for spending on the show and make sure that our listeners go check him out in St. Louis. And Kyle, it's going to be sad not seeing you around the office and not seeing you here on the Lion Share Marketing Podcast a couple times a month, but we certainly wish you all the best moving forward. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. Actually, I do have one concern. I've, I've thought about this a couple of times. And you know, a lot of podcast listeners, they listen to their podcasts at one and a half or two times speed. And I'm afraid if anybody comes to St. Louis now and they visit me and we meet in person, they're going to think I talk really slowly. Have you ever thought about that? All the time. It actually yeah. happens. I'm one of those guys. I listen to my podcast at one and a half speed. So <laughs> I, I guarantee you, I think everyone speaks slow in real life. I spent right. listening to podcasts. Yeah. I sound really on top of it at one and a half to two times speed, but... When it's the real thing, I sound a little slow, but you know, whatever. But if you guys want to stay in touch, I would love to stay in touch with you. You can pretty much, you can go to lionsharepodcast.com. There's some links to profiles and whatnot. And I hope to be back again as a guest in future episodes. And uh, if you want to stay in touch with me, you could pretty much go to any social media platform and type in at Kyle Weber photo, and you can stay in touch. And I'd love to stay in touch with all y'all. Yeah. And ladies, he's still single, still available to date. And just remember, great thoughts are much like great pizzas and that they usually take 15 to 20 minutes to cook up. Right. So. <laughs> great. And when in doubt, just slap some extra cheese on it and it's all good. That's right. Yeah. And extra cheese never hurt anyone. No, except you, because you got to keep your food costs down. You're on the other side of that. Yeah, business. I do. No. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I'm also trying to keep my midsection down as well. So, you know. Yeah, hurry up and find a girlfriend before you've uh, owned that place for too long. Okay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It may get harder as you go. Right, That's you're probably right about that. Yeah, but it's been a joy to be on the Lion Share Marketing Podcast. I've really enjoyed being here with Tyler. 
And uh, like I said, I hope to be on future episodes and yeah, we'll, we'll just keep in touch and best wishes. And we hope that uh, you've gotten a lot out of this podcast so far, but I can tell you for sure what's coming down the pipe for this podcast is going to be some big things and we're going to have some great guests and I'm looking forward to continue as a listener now. Absolutely. Kyle, thanks again. And uh, until next time, cheers. You've been listening to the Lion's Share Podcast, brought to you by Fidelitas Development, your marketing partner for better brand loyalty. 